This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. We have Dr. Clota Ryan. She has embarked on a new way of practicing medicine. She is a direct care primary care provider. So she's first going to discuss the difference between the traditional model of what primary care is. Then she'll talk about, at some point, the differences between concierge medicine and direct primary care and how she got into doing direct primary care. And because she is from Ireland, plays Irish music, so we'll have a sample of that as well. We'll chat about the differences between, say, healthcare in Canada, the U.S., and Europe. So, Dr. Ryan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Or what would you say are the biggest differences between traditional primary care, direct primary care, and concierge medicine? Traditional primary care is really based on payment for a visit model. We call it fee-for-service. Your doctor doesn't get paid unless we see you in the office. The, they and the healthcare systems benefit more with a higher volume of patients seen per day. In the traditional system, the primary care physician will see anywhere from 15 to 30 patients per day, which doesn't leave very much time for the patient. Direct primary care is different in that we don't bill insurance at all. Our patients pay a monthly membership of anywhere roughly from 50 to $100 per month, and they, for that, get unlimited visits, access to their doctor by text, email, phone call. They can call their doctor at 8 o'clock on a Monday night and uh, be seen at the office at 8.30 to get sutures. They can text a rash picture from their kid from poison ivy or something like that and get a reply and a prescription sent to the pharmacy. So it's a very accessible, affordable, and kind of a personalized version of primary care. Concierge care has a, a lot of similarities to direct primary care. Generally, the price point is significantly higher than fifty to hundred dollars per month. I would say at least two hundred dollars per month, if not three, four, or five hundred. So the concierge care is definitely similar in that the concierge patients do get that access, personalized care, but at a higher price point. Often, but not always, concierge doctors will also bill your insurance when they see you in the office. So that's a double kind of payment system there. The three different models can be interspersed too. There's there's no right way to do anything. You can also have a hybrid, but it hybrid means that you can do a membership and bill insurance too. They're not set in stone, but that's the basic well, premise. Well, there, there are pros and cons to everything, so let's start with the high end. What are the pros and cons from a patient standpoint from, say, they just have a lot of money? What would be the pros and cons from the concierge standpoint? You mean from the patient standpoint? Yes. I think there's a lot of pros to being able to have a doctor who knows you well and listens listens for a longer period of time to what's going on in your life and know, and then is able to take care of you better. Spending a lot longer with the patient really helps not only in their acute needs, but also in their long-term healthcare needs. They feel more accountable because they have had much more education on how to prevent chronic disease. They get a lot more encouragement to live healthier lives. That follows both for concierge and direct primary care. I think for concierge, the con, I mean, the main con would really be the vast majority of population is really priced out of the market. It's very expensive for most regular people. So direct primary care provides... Oh, wait, what are you really getting for that much more money? 
That's a good question, Chris. I'm not sure. I'm sure some concierge doctors might be able to answer that. Direct primary care doctors would say that you can get probably almost the same level of service for a lower price point in our system. I don't really know what else someone would do for that much more money. You know, I'm not sure either, and I'm not a concierge physician, but there may be somebody that could answer that question better for you. Sure. I know I know. as direct primary care, we do the biggest plus for us is the on patients is the accessibility and the personalized care. An affordable price point is much, is much more attractive to the vast majority of patients. My Look, patients come from all walks of life. I have patients who are living paycheck to paycheck. I am the only primary care that they have. And then I have people who join more for the concierge the more luxury they're doing it as an extra, an add-on to what they have already. That's the beauty of direct primary care. We kind of cross the whole divide. So just to compare and contrast direct primary care more so to the traditional model, because you did typical primary care where people would come in, they'd call the office, get an appointment. On average, how long does the average primary care doctor have with someone they're seeing? I believe the average is around seven to 10 minutes. On average, how long would a direct primary care physician spend with a person? At least 30 minutes and often 60 minutes. So say one of your patients like had something more complicated going on, and they need to sit there and talk to you for, say, two hours. Some people have complicated things going on. How right. much of a problem would that be? Generally, I book patients initially for an hour, and then I get to know them so I know if they need that hour going forward. And if they do, it's not a problem at all. I have spent an hour and a half to two hours with patients at times. And most of the time, that's not a problem as long as we are aware going into that day that we, we need to book that. There's no problem at all. There's always time to spend with the patient. Because some people have a lot of medical things going on. What are the odds that someone could book, let's just say an hour for ease, with a primary care physician or PA or NP in a traditional hospital setting or outpatient setting? You know, I'd say that's very unlikely. I do know that most physicians in a traditional setting, if they knew it was a very complicated patient, they would try to book that a 30-minute visit. But by often halfway through the afternoon, they may be running late. So it's, it just ends up that the physician who's trying the best they can to provide the best service and care for each patient, they end up running late. And that's what happened to me. I would try to give that complicated patient more time. I would be scheduled for 15, sometimes 30 minutes, but it wouldn't be enough. So I would be running late and I would walk in, you know, go out to the waiting room to get my next patient and I'd be met with a sea of angry faces because they were sitting for 45 minutes to an hour waiting for me. So that's what happens is people just end up, there's a lot of wasted time on our patients' part and a lot of frustration and just overwhelming um, busyness for the physician. So if someone shows, say someone has an appointment with you at 2.30 and they show up, say, 2.30, how long do they have to wait before they see you? Generally, I'm standing waiting for them, and I take them into the room because we schedule 30 to 60-minute visits. Every so often, I get caught unawares, and somebody has a lot more to deal with than we anticipate, and I may be running 10 minutes late, but no more. It used to be 45 to 60 minutes average running late, and now it's, I'm usually waiting for the patient. My other question is, so you're not seeing as many people during the day as a typical primary care provider. Right. So say you can FaceTime or you talk to them and you, someone says, hey, I have pneumonia, and you talk to them and you diagnose them with, it's clearly pneumonia. Do they have to come in and see you or can you just treat them? It really depends on the clinical scenario and my level of knowledge of that patient. In general, I do request my patients come to see me when they enroll. Do you know them better when they call a month later? So it depends on the clinical scenario. What is it exactly? It's something I might want to see them for or 
they have a lot of chronic conditions and they're they're sick people, so I want to evaluate them in case they need to go to the ER, etc. But for the most part, uncomplicated illnesses in generally healthy patients, most of them I take care of over the phone. So we do see, you know, several patients in the office per day, but not as many as in the regular system. But then we probably take care of just as many more by phone. They don't have to leave work to come in to see me. They love it. They save time at work. They save time waiting in my waiting room. And they just pick up the prescription of the pharmacy and they're very happy with the service. How spread out is your attention now versus when you're working in a traditional hospital system? So much more focused on my patients now. I know them so much better. So you start to have a little bit of more excitement about new cases and diagnoses and research and having time to learn about new stuff if you have a new a new case that you haven't had many of before. It's so much more focused and it's so much more satisfying, I think, both for physician and patient to practice this way. We were talking offline and I wasn't involved in the case, but during my residency, there was a friend of mine. He was a, like this great guy. He had this beautiful wife, two kids, and he had just matched into a plastics program and he, he wanted to do reconstructive treatment for kids with cleft lips and palates and just a super great guy. He was having these GI problems and he went in and he got a colonoscopy and, you know, they did the colonoscopy and he never heard anything. So he thought he was totally fine. And then about a year later, he was having some more stomach problems. So he goes in and then they told him that, well, you unfortunately have stage four rectal cancer and you're terminal and there's nothing we can do. Shortly after that, he died. Speaking to the people that were involved in this case, if they had caught that earlier, it's highly likely it would be treated, could have been Mm -hmm. treated and he could have gone on and had a very great life. I think it's easy and very unfortunate that when doctors are overwhelmed with information, as hard as they try, if they have all of this stuff going on at the same time, it's difficult to track these things versus if they have their primary care provider, doctor, with less to do, but they can really focus in on their care. So you were talking about a case where if you want to tell that story about how you really spent a significant amount of time on one person that really needed it. I believe it involved a lot of phone yeah. calls. and Yeah, I had a, a case a few weeks ago, um, a 10-year-old with back pain. And, you know, it's not a very common thing in a 10-year-old. And it took us about a week to figure out that she had acute bacterial discitis, which is a very rare infection of the disc between the, the spine bones. And that was a pretty overwhelming case as a primary care physician to handle. But because I had so much more time and mental energy to focus and I knew that it wasn't right something wasn't right so I was I made a lot of calls called mother every day until we figured out that things were not getting better we ended up the diagnosis was made and spent a lot of time getting her admitted to the the large university hospital close to us and talking to the physicians there who were absolutely awesome and taking care of her I thought back when I was going through the replaying the events of this case in my mind and I thought I could never really have given this family this level of care and attention in my old job. I don't know how we would have done it and they would have just, I would have sent them to the ER. Obviously she ended up getting admitted. We as primary care physicians know a lot more than we think. Sometimes we give ourselves credit for in the old system because we have no time to do the full intellectual pathway that leads to diagnosis and treatment, right? We're taught to take care of babies through elderly and yet because we only have seven minutes to see the patient and click all the boxes that need to be clicked, we don't have the time to do that clinical that clinical evaluation 
evaluation and, and diagnosis and everything that we can do and are taught to do so in medical school. But I was able to spend a lot more mental energy trying to figure this out. And I feel like that is much more fulfilling both for physician and patient when your primary care physician can practice to the highest level that they have been trained to instead of having to push people off to specialists when they don't have time to figure stuff out. Well, I'm a little paranoid. And for me, it would be worth it to have someone literally doing nothing else if I were sick than watching over me to make sure that things don't get missed. All the appropriate tests are done and all the the tests are followed up on. And I agree. And I feel like I always had that level of alarm bells ringing when I would have a patient that I I felt was sick. But now I have more mental space to remember them every day after they and I follow up with all my patients now who I'm worried about two or three, you know, one, two, three days later. Sometimes I text them or call them every day. How are you feeling today? How are you feeling today? Are you getting better yet? And that's what happened with this particular case was following her every day. But in my old job, I'm so busy that I wouldn't remember till the next time they called. It's a very different mindset. I think that's very comforting to your patients, too, that they know your physician is thinking about you. How are you feeling? You know, even just as you, you mentioned pneumonia, I always follow up my pneumonia patients a couple of days later. Are you feeling any better? Even if they're young, healthy people, because that's something that, as you know, can turn, become more severe if left unchecked. When these a little bit more sick patients come in, I have a very high level of attention to them at that time of illness. And that's the beauty of being able to, with direct primary care, just being able to focus on the patient. I think some people will become doctors because everyone else in their family is a doctor or a whole host of reasons, but there's a subset of people who they just have a calling. So some people have a calling to be teachers, some people have a calling to be firemen, some people have a calling to serve in the armed forces. And the way you talk about medicine, you really have a calling to serve people in that healthcare realm. Yeah, I agree. It's funny because I grew up in a farm in Ireland. My dad was a farmer and his father was a doctor. And my family were all, all my, the seven siblings were all kind of more scientific, the careers that we chose. My dad always wanted one of us to be a doctor and I totally resisted it until it came to be the time that I really had to make that decision. I was like, oh, okay then, you know, but he was right. It actually totally fits my personality in that I love people. And I love to get to know them and I care about what happens to them and I care about their mental health. I care about their physical health and I get as much from my patients. I feel like they get from me. I like to have a variety of um, illnesses and diseases coming in the door. I like um, getting to know my patients. I like to take care of their mental health is a big part of my practice. In fact, I enjoy it much more than I thought I ever would to take care of anxiety and depression and all sorts of just sadness and bereavement for my patients. So it has been a great fit because I have a very curious mind, but yet I like that social atmosphere of a primary care office and getting to know and really having a long-term personal relationship with my patients. It sounds like it'd probably be a lot higher level care because you really are in touch with this person and what a lab test may not pick up, you'd probably pick up because it's a change from their normal functioning baseline. Yeah, I do. I get to know my patients on a much more, even compared to my old system where I was seeing 20, 30 patients a day. And I had a good handle a lot of my patients, but I had so many patients that I didn't know them all very well. Now I get to know them really well. And for sure, I can handle so much more over the phone with them or just give them the time to get to the bottom of exactly what's happening. And sometimes we end up spending that hour, even if they're just coming in for a routine visit, because sometimes we dig into, you know, what's troubling them or what's 
going on with their family life or who's, you know, one of their kids is having struggles. And that to them is very valuable for patients to have a doctor they can confide in and, and feel like they're listened to and validated. That makes it a lot easier then when they have clinical conditions, diseases, because they know exactly what their personality is, etc. In talking to you offline, you sound genuinely very happy with where you are right now in life. So right now, for anyone listening who isn't in the healthcare field, there's a large growing concern about physician burnout and people just getting very frustrated with the field. A lot of people who really just want to take care of people and do the right thing, the term would be burnt out and they're just done with the field and they go off and do something else. Can you comment for the general public and for healthcare providers can you discuss the factors that contribute to that burnout and then how what led you to do what you're doing now? Sure. So when I moved here from Ireland, I ended up in residency um, about 13 years ago. And I enjoyed residency a lot and learned a lot about the practice of medicine and the American healthcare systems, the billing part and all the extra stuff that we had to do to jump through a loophole or jump through the hoops for insurance companies was very frustrating at coming from a different system. And I was like, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Why do we have to do this again? Um, so then when I got into private practice, I it got worse. It was much worse because there wasn't that buffer of the residency. So I had to kind of deal with a lot of that stuff myself. I would spend five, ten minutes between patients trying to figure out a couple of insurance-related headaches that were really not clinical patient care. And that would put me even further behind. That went on and on and on and got worse and worse and worse over the years with all the different, you know, when Obamacare came in and there were so many different new insurances that came in with all the different headaches that those arose and nobody knew exactly how anybody's insurance worked so we had to just go with it every single day and try to figure out what every patient needed at that time and prior authorizations callbacks from pharmacies no we won't cover amoxicillin we'll only cover you know that's an example but you like if you won't cover this antibiotic we'll only cover this antibiotic and that took away my clinical decision making because i had asked for the first antibiotic so that was very frustrating because i wasn't practicing medicine the way i had been taught I was practicing medicine according to insurance regulations. I have four kids. I think I started my private practice. I started, I, I had my third at the beginning of that time and my fourth shortly after. I worked all the way through, but I would find progressively more and more time at home was spent doing the charts after the fact because I didn't have any time during the day because I was seeing so many patients and taking care of all of, all of these insurance headaches. My family life began to suffer somewhat. I actually had some health issues, I think, that were chronic health issues that kind of were precipitated by this incredibly stressful work situation. Um, my husband got frustrated because we didn't really have time to spend together, etc. So it was very, very hard. I also worked evenings and weekends, and that was just hard on our lives in general. And so a few years ago, I started to look around for a solution to my frustration. And I wouldn't say I necessarily called it burnout in my head because I think as doctors we don't want to call ourselves burnout right we're superhumans right we go through all this training and you put your mind to it and you just keep going I can do it I can do it because you want to get through to the end and then you get to the end which is private practice or hospital system practice or whatever this isn't really what happened all I put it I put all this effort in and so I 
So then I started thinking, okay, what is it I really want? I started looking at non-clinical jobs. I thought about leaving medicine, going into academia, going into pharmaceuticals. I was just looking at all these different options. I knew my heart was in clinical medicine. My heart was in that room with the patient. I loved that part. It was the rest of it that I hated. I considered concierge medicine at a time too, but I coming from a background where I my parents are blue collar, I, I wanted to keep that patient population too because I really enjoyed taking care of them. And then I found direct primary care. I met with a direct primary care doctor who was doing it. I think it was January of 2017 and it was like a light bulb meeting. It was like an hour of breakfast with her. I was like, okay, I'm shutting up shop with my private practice. I'm going to start a direct primary care practice. And then I had to go home and explain this all to my husband and he was like, what? <laughs> you know, I knew that that was the answer for me. I was right. I mean, it has been absolutely joyful. I have a quick question. So when you told the wherever it is you were working that you were quitting, was that like a sad day or was that a, well, I'm quitting now. Happy day. Or mixed. I, I, I would have to say there was a little bit of both because I was in a private practice. I wasn't in a hospital-owned practice, which I think adds an extra level of an administrative burden to a, a primary care physician. You know, when you have administrators, managers who are telling you this is the way the practice has to run and this is how many patients you have to see to budgets and all this sort of stuff. I didn't have that necessarily. I was with one other physician who owned the practice and he was very good to me, very flexible when I had my kids were little, but it was the insurance side of the system that I absolutely couldn't stand. I knew that I, to do to uh, transition to direct primary care, I would have to leave his practice because I didn't think that would be something he would want to do. So there was a little bit of both. I was joyful, but I was also, it was a, it was a good job until it just got worse and worse with EMRs and um, insurance regulations. I think you're in a unique place to comment on, because right now there's a lot of debate in healthcare about a single payer system, who has the best healthcare. Obviously, you have a unique model, but I don't know if that's really scalable to a national level. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Can you comment on your take on where you think healthcare should go, or maybe the pros and cons of, like, say, the Irish system versus the US system versus cash only system versus maybe the European or Canadian model? I'd like to just tell your listeners just a little bit more about how direct primary care works before I explain those differences, because I think we did touch on the membership part. You know, my patients pay 50 to $100 a month, depending on their age. And for that, they get unlimited visits. They can have text, email, phone calls, after hours coverage. But they also get access to significant discounts on medication. I dispense medications for just a little bit over wholesale prices. For example, one of my patients might pay, say, well, Butrin is a, a common antidepressant that I use $50 a month through their, through their insurance with some coverage through their insurance, and I can get that for $10 a month. One of my blood pressure pills, a lot of them are like less than a dollar a month. I had an antiviral drug that I prescribed for a patient for cold sores, and she was quoted $800 a month through her insurance, but cash pay, but through her insurance, 250 So she called me, and I was able to get it for $17. There's a lot of price gouging going on in the pharmaceutical world as well. People think, oh yeah, my insurance is helping me pay for this, but they don't realize it might be cheap to get it for cash. That has been really kind of a fun part of the practice and direct primary care model is to educate patients, hey, you know what? I can actually get my prescriptions from Dr. Ryan and save more than my membership per month. I have one patient who saves $100 a month on her prescriptions. That's a huge part of what we do is to educate patients. You know what? It's not that cheap to get something for $15 a month when your doctor can actually get it from the wholesale for two. So that has been very enjoyable. And I do feel like I'm providing a service because 
because we are bringing down price. The other thing we do provide is to try and uh, navigate radiology services and other test services for patients for cash prices. And often those cash prices are better than that, what they would pay if they were paying through their insurance. So sleep studies, you know, EKG, stress tests, x-rays, MRIs. My local MRI services are usually around $300 cash and my x-rays are about $60 and we have a, a bunch of specialists who will give us, you know, cash pay visits and also sometimes provide some of these testing services for cash in their office. So that's a big part of the extra part we try to provide and we are building for our patients as we go. I have a couple of gastroenterologists who have provided cash pay lists for colonoscopies. Say, I'm trying to remember, it's like $1,400 for colonoscopy for someone who has no insurance, that's a pretty good deal if you're having some sort of symptoms, right? So we're not just providing that access, personal care, we're also educating our patients. There is another way. You can actually have a, an insurance plan that really only covers catastrophic events and save several hundred dollars a month on your premiums for that. And then you add a direct primary care membership on top for the 80 to 90% of what you need in any given year. You know, a lot of my patients end up with catastrophic um, insurance plans. They add me and they're pretty much covered. In fact, my own brother, who's Irish but living in Kansas, did sign up with an insurance plan and a direct primary care on my urging. And he and his, his wife are saving $600 a month with a much more wraparound coverage for their health. Well, it sounds like it might be a great option for insurance for a small business as well. You know, that's funny. You should say that. It is a great option. In fact, a lot of the direct primary care community uh, physicians have a lot of small business contracts. And I do have one small business that's signing up pretty soon. We um, often, DPC docs will provide even a discount if small businesses sign up their employees. They save money and their employees are happy because they have doc that listens and cares. The employers are happy because we don't uh, take them out of work for three hours to go see the doctor. A lot of the time we take care of them over the phone. Yeah, it works out really well too for even just self-employed. A lot of my patients are self-employed and their families sign up and some of them have been priced out of Obamacare and they're just happy to find a solution. To go back to the original question, you wanted to just kind of compare what the US healthcare system is compared to what I lived and trained in in Ireland. It's funny, I did listen to one of your previous podcasts where I think it was Dr. Eric Tate, which was very informative. And you talked a lot about Canada and the UK NHS and sort of, and that was a lot of what you guys said in that podcast was spot on. I think that the cancer and the emergency care here is among the best in the world, but yet the primary care and the non-urgent care, there's a waiting list for everything. I grew up in the NHS, but at that point, my whole family was healthy, so I don't really have much memory of our need for the healthcare system at that point. I worked in the Irish healthcare system in Dublin for about years, maybe. That was including medical school and all the training. I was actually in the primary care clinic before I moved here. I probably saw 30 patients a day, but we didn't have the same level of note charting to do. We had two or three line notes about the patient and that was it. A constant mill of just seeing patients every 30 seconds in that system. There wasn't uh, that much personal attention. And then the issue I would have would be when somebody had an acute or a subacute condition where I was like, okay, do I need to send this patient to the ER? Because I knew if I sent them to the ER, they would be waiting for 8 to 12 hours before they saw a doctor. 
And I remember every time if somebody came in with chest pain, it was the biggest. I had to make sure I was really worried that this was a cardiac or like a serious a cardiac or a pulmonary chest pain. Because if I sent them to the ER and they had anxiety, chest pain caused by anxiety, they were there for 24 hours getting evaluated. It wasn't like they were there for six. It was a very difficult call to send people because of the waiting. And then just simple stuff like patients wait three years for a hip replacement or my own mom who has macular degeneration has been waiting over a year to see a retinal specialist. And that's in Um, Ireland? Yes, that's in Northern Ireland, actually. But the interesting thing is there's some really good parts of the NHS and the Irish system, which are quite similar. But what has cropped up now and was there when I was working is that oftentimes people have a secondary insurance policy, private insurance. So that when they need to be seen, they can get in quicker. They use their insurance and they go to some of the, most of the consultants or the specialists are paid by the government. So that they're allowed to have a private clinic on the side in order to get seen quickly. You use your private insurance and you go to the private clinic or you pay out of pocket. So it's kind of like Canada. I think I feel like you guys talked about this. People will pay out of pocket to get seen quicker. Well, Canada is a funny place where... I may be wrong on this, but based on my last looking into this, a physician can't set up a practice and bill for cash for something that the government provides. Cosmetic surgery, things that the government is not covering, you can bill for that. But if the government is going to pay for something, you cannot charge someone cash for it. Essentially shut down any sort of direct care model in Canada. And I'm not sure that the NHS in the UK is not like that. I can't remember exactly because I haven't worked or lived there for a, a long time. But I know in Ireland you can, for sure. Every consultant had their private practice. And that was really where they were able to practice medicine much more effectively. But it creates a two-tier system. We had the people who could get in more quickly. And then those who were on the government and program who would be waiting. It's not really equal either. Um, it was very frustrating also to, we would have to write letters. If I wanted to send someone, let's say they had hyperthyroidism or something, an endocrine or a rheumatological problem, I would have to write a letter to a consultant and send it off. And the patient would wait for at least three months before they got an appointment. And so, for example, my own parents who are elderly now, they are sent a letter when they have a consultant appointment. And if they can't make that appointment, they lose that appointment. They have to rearrange their time. And it usually takes months to get the letter. Once you get in there, the um, specialist care is really pretty good, but it's the wait time. And people suffer. They end up suffering or they don't get the right treatment or their cancer is more developed or has spread by the time they get seen or they turn to alternative treatments because they can't get seen. So they're turning to the, the supplements and except the more alternative herbals and stuff. It's interesting to see. I think people tend to put up with more there and here they tend to put up with less. Like they're almost sometimes too quick to visit the doctor sometimes, whereas there, you know, you can't get in, so you're not going to go. It's an interesting argument against the two-tiered system because then you'd say, well, it's not really fair. The argument against that would be if someone wants to pay for something, they should be able to. And I know what you're saying. I think it is. It's a hard argument. It's very difficult because you may have someone who just will never have the ability to pay for something. Why do they need to wait three months? That's difficult. I think it's the same in many other facets of our social makeup. It's a difficult one for sure. One thing that I do find, you're saying my patients pay for my care, right? So my patients pay me directly. And I find because they're not using the middleman, the insurance, they are much more invested because the money's coming out of their accounts. So they will come in for their physicals and they will follow up because they know they're paying for it. And they're much more likely to 
call me because they're not worried about those extra costs that might come, the extra co-pays, or if they haven't met their deductible, what are they going to be paying for their labs, etc. I find that the preventive care is much easier in this system because the patients are invested. They have a little skin in the game. There are economic studies that show that the quality of the care quickly decreases as time spent with someone decreases. I think these studies were done in Russia where when they decrease the payment per visit, the natural response, the economic response is then the physicians there would just shorten their office visits. So they were seeing people, you know, for five or six minutes at a time. But the problem is if someone has something a little bit more complicated, you can't just say, well, you have shoulder pain, I'm going to address your shoulder. Maybe it's something systemic that's also affecting their knee and their hands and everything else. But if you're only talking about one problem, then you're going to miss that. Right. I think you touched on this on your previous podcast, too, about that we're moving toward that direction. We're going to do a one problem visit. I remember one of the teachers and residents telling us, you need to have your patients tell you what are the two most pressing issues that you need to take care of because you can't spend that much time with them. And I remember rebelling against that inside. And I was like, that sounds awful. You mean I want my patient to come back a second time to tell me what's going on? I just didn't feel like that was the right thing to do as a physician. I agree with you. I think that we have a moral obligation to take care of our patients. They tell you the one thing that they think is most important. It might not be the one thing that you think is most important. They tell you about their toe pain when they are having rectal bleeding. Which one do we think is more important might be different. That's what I love about this model is that they come in and I say, okay, we've got 60 minutes. Tell me everything you need to tell me. And sometimes they're looking at the clock saying, I think I'm done my doctor. It is beautiful to be able to relax about that. And sometimes we get to the real nitty gritty at at minute 45 and we'd never get to it in a regular practice. I feel like that part has been such a relief for me to be able to practice and take care of people properly. I think the other part is that we charge so little per month. It's really less than a cell phone bill. Yet, It is a very sustainable model for direct primary care doctors. We can make a good, decent living on that level of membership. And why is that? Because we take away a lot of our overhead. We have a lot less staff. We don't have to have billing, insurance, uh, lots of nurses. We don't need that. I do a lot of my own phone calls, emails. I answer the phone a lot of the time. I do all my vitals. I have a nurse now who draws labs, but I can dispense medications myself because we have the time. That's why we can provide this level of care at that affordable rate because we are able to take care of the patient. It is a much more sustainable model, I think, than anything I've ever worked in, including the NHS and the Irish system, because both the patient and the physician are happy, satisfied, and well taken care of. Actually, we don't have much research yet, but the research is coming out that direct primary care, because we have more time with our patients, the level of prevention of ER visits, urgent care visits, is huge. So the healthcare costs are coming down for DPC patients, but also I think there's some research coming out that they are healthier because we spend more time on prevention. We have more time to spend on prevention. Do you think this is a scalable model? I would love to see this to be a scalable model because otherwise it's just going to be something that's accessible for some pockets of the country. I think that what needs to happen is that physicians need to take back control of their profession. I think it has, as you know, Medicare in the 60s and all the way through, there have been so many people taking control of a physician's practice. If a physician doesn't want to do that, it makes it more difficult. But we can 
take back medicine and should. Because I think that's what needs to happen is physicians need to say no more. All of this stuff that we are doing, we didn't train to do in medical school. Let's find a better answer. And the direct primary care community across the country, there's around over just over a thousand practices now in, in the country. If anybody wants to find a direct primary care practice near them, the best website to go to do that is a website called dpcfrontier.com. Uh, that's DPC Frontier. They, then there was a mapper on there, so they can actually go and look at a map of the United States and find DPC practice close to them. But the DPC community across the country is very, very supportive of new practices and will help anyone who wants to reach out to me. I'm very happy to talk to them if they are thinking about switching to direct primary care and introduce them to the right people, talk to them about all the things they need to do. That was really what helped me. I had mentors in the direct primary community who gave up their time freely and happily to help me. And I'm very happy to do it for this for anyone else who wants to. And that, I think, is the difference is everybody has a passion for it because it feels right and true and it feels good for the patient and good for the physician. And I think that's what is the crux of it is that it feels like the right thing to do. And so everyone who is doing this already, early adopters, the pioneers, these guys are doing, they have a, a passion for what they're doing now. And I feel like that where our physicians who are, as you said, you mentioned burnout, anyone can have that if they want to. It's just taking the leap. And it feels a little scary for sure. It was not an easy thing to do, but it is very doable. And even if you are the primary caregiver with $400,000 in student loans and a mortgage and two kids, I know many direct primary care doctors who did it in that situation and continue to do it and be successful. It is difficult, I think, as a physician, as you come out of medical school and have these student loans and the financial burdens that physicians have. But there is a huge supportive community ready to help anyone who wants to make that change. And for patients, I hope that patients will see direct primary care practices popping up in your area pretty soon. They are growing very fast. I think about a few years ago, there was only 200 practices, maybe four or five years ago. This is a very new movement. Really since 2010, there have been a huge explosion of direct primary care. And there's a reason for that, because it worked, because patients like it. So I'm very excited to be part of it. I live in uh, the western suburbs of Chicago, and my practice is in a suburb called LaGrange, and we have about six to ten direct primary care practices in Chicago, and we have new physicians calling me all the time saying, how does it work? I'd really like to make the move. I'm always happy to hear from anyone who wants to hear about it. Do you have any social media contacts or ways for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, my practice is called CARA, C-A-R-A, Direct Care. And CARA is the Irish word for friend. And that was meaningful because I wanted this to be a friendly place. And I do like to become friendly with my patients. So I have a Facebook page, CARA Direct Care. I'm on Twitter and Instagram, I think, at CARA Direct Care. Instagram might be at Dr. Flo. I may have changed that because I like the sound of Dr. Flo. I have a website, caradirectcare.com. I'm happy to have anybody contact me. I'm happy to direct them to the right place if they are calling from out of state or are wanting to know about other direct primary care practices. It has been a really fun ride for me to meet all these entrepreneurial, passionate docs like-minded ducks who have forged the path for me. I do think I'm the first Irish national direct primary care doc, which is kind of a nice thing to think about. It has been a joy to meet all of these people who are, have such a passion for what they do and have escaped the system where they felt like they weren't being the best doctors they could be. It has been a joy. It's just joyful. My job is such a pleasure now, and I really love what I do. And I do not get that Sunday night 
blues anymore. I love going to work on Monday. I mean, that's all we all hope for, right? Is to have a job we love and we go to and we're happy to be there. I mean, that's just the best thing in the world. I know people are wondering this question soon because I know also that direct primary care and concierge people will cap their practices. So because someone's going to ask, are you accepting new patients at this time? I am still accepting new patients. Yes, I am getting close to full, but right now I'm not there yet. My hope is because we don't have very much DPC in Chicago area that I will continue to grow even if I cap my practice that we'll, I would like to save another doctor from the system. Um, not yet, but eventually I would hope to grow and add more doctors to my practice because I love it. I want other people to have as much fun as I'm having. Well, Dr. Ryan, thank you very much. And again, we'll include all of the contact information. And as a side note, Dr. Ryan also plays Irish music very well. We'll include a clip of that. I'd love to play some music for you. That's the other passion in my life, which I've given time to. And yeah, I get to play a lot of Irish music, which is really good. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again, and see you next time.